All right, we are in Revelation, the book of Revelation. Should join me there in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, is where we're going to start this morning. Revelation chapter 6 is where we're going to start, but we're going to study Revelation chapter 7. But to kind of give us some context and help us understand Revelation 7, we need to start back in Revelation 6. All right, kids, so here's today's special Bible word. And so this is what I want you to do every time you hear this word or you see uh, this or we read this word, you just keep a tally. All right, so every time you hear this word this morning, just keep a tally how many times you, you hear this word said or we read it this morning. And then at the end, after the service this morning, you can come up to me, tell me how many times you heard this word or show me a picture that you drew from this morning and we'll let you get something from the prize box. And today's special Bible word is Jesus. His name is today's special Bible word, so we want you to be listening for that name, the name of Jesus this morning, and keep a tally of how many times you hear his name said or read today. So Re Revelation chapter 6, before we look at verses 15, 16, and 17, maybe you can relate to this scene. How many of you have been to the beach, been to the ocean? Okay, quite a few of you. So maybe some of you can relate to this scene. Maybe you've done this with your kids, if you have children. Um, just imagine a mom or dad, and they're walking out into the ocean with their little one, and they're holding hands, and they're, the whole goal is to kind of stand there and take on the wave, right, to kind of brave the pounding of the wave, right? So they stand there, they're holding hands, and, and the wave comes, and they get wet a little bit, and then mom or dad kind of creeps out a little bit deeper into the water. Anybody done this? All right, with your kids. And then, you know, the, they get splashed again, and then you go a little bit farther, all right, and then like, and then maybe fear kind of creeps in a little bit for the child, and then what do you do? You just let them, no, you pick them up, all right? You typically pick up your child, and you hold them in your arms, and then while you, the parent, you just keep going deeper, right, deeper and deeper, and the waves keep coming, but what happens? You're the one, right? You're the one taking the pounding of the waves, right? And so you get deeper, and now the water's over your child's head and all this stuff, but now maybe you put them on your shoulders, and the only way that the child is able to stand against the pounding of the waves is because of who's holding them. The only way that the, the child is able to stand against the pounding of the waves is because of who's holding them. Now, I want you to keep that scene, that picture in your mind's eye as we come into Revelation chapter 6, verses 15, 16, and 17. This is what it says. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Who can stand? Who's able to overcome the pounding waves of God's judgment when it is poured out on earth? Who will be able to overcome? Will you? Will your kids? Will your coworkers? Will your roommates be ones who will be able to stand? The answer to that question is found, I believe, in chapter 7 of Revelation. 
Now, before we look at what the answer to the question, who's able to stand, before we dig into that answer, just a couple review, a couple reminders as it relates to this book of Revelation. One is, when we come to the book of Revelation, we need to understand that the book of Revelation is less about how the world is going to end and more about the victory of the church through our resurrected King Jesus. Okay, we need to keep that in mind when we're studying the book of Revelation. It is less about the end times, less about how the world is going to end, and more about the victory of the church through our resurrected King Jesus. So when you read the book of Revelation, you need to be looking for Jesus and you need to be looking for victory. Right? So that's the lens through which we want to see this revelation of Jesus Christ. And actually this book is not called the book of Revelation. It is actually called the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this is all about Jesus. And so when you're reading Revelation, you're looking for Jesus, you're, you're looking for victory. Now, let's kind of get caught up to speed a little bit since it's been several weeks since we've been in Revelation. Where are we in this vision, this revelation that John sees of Jesus? Well, back in chapter 5, John had a vision. He saw a vision, and what he saw was a scroll. And that scroll was sealed seven times. And then what we see eventually is this lamb, who we come to understand is Jesus, he comes to open this scroll. And that was really good news because that scroll contains God's plan for distributing his justice on the earth, which is to prove that not only he is king, but to prove that you would be right in giving your life to, to following him. And so that's what's in this scroll. And so it's God's plan for bringing justice to vindicate, to prove that, yes, you're right in giving your life to following him. And that's what's happening in chapter 5. And so John sees a scroll, it has seven seals on it, and then Jesus comes to open it. Now chapter 6, Jesus opens six of the seven scrolls, or seven seals, excuse me. He opens six of the seven seals on the scroll. And each time he opens a seal, he sees some kind of expression or display of God bringing his judgment or justice onto the earth. Things like military, government leaders who are creating war. And then that war leads to famine. And then that famine leads to disease. And then that, all of that brings about death. And that's what we see in chapter 6, is this unleashing, if you will, of God's justice or judgment. And then at the end of chapter 6, here we come. We come to those who are still continuing to refuse to surrender, refuse to turn their lives over to King Jesus. So instead of them turning to Jesus, they continue to re rebel and reject Jesus. And as a result of that, they are crying out, instead of turning to him, they're saying, who's able to stand against the pounding waves of God's judgment? And that's the question. And you should want to know the answer to that question. You should. You should want to know who's able to stand because you need to know, are, are you one of them? Will you be one of those who's able to stand against the pounding waves of God's justice? You need, you need to know the answer to that. You should want to know the answer for, for your kids. You should want to know the answer if it's your roommates, if it's your, your loved ones, your coworkers, if, if they will be ones able to stand. And so let's dig into Revelation chapter 7 and let's see what the answer is. Revelation 7, we'll stop at verse 3. After this, John sees four angels. He says, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. 
Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea. And he says, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So Revelation 7 opens with John still inside God's throne. God's throne room. He's still there in the presence of God's throne room. And what, what he sees are four angels, right? Four corners of the earth and four winds. And so, so what you have is John seeing this in, in heaven and he sees these four angels at the four corners of the earth. Now, that was an ancient term for representing the four directions on a compass, which are... Thank you. North, south, east, west. So John is seeing an angel at the north, an angel at the south, one at east, west, whatever. All right, so that's what John is seeing. And, and, and what are they doing? They're holding back wind, these winds. Now, we always want to use the Bible to understand the Bible. And as we've said before in this study, there's a lot of Old Testament references in the book of Revelation. If you're to go back to the book of Jeremiah, we won't look at it, but if you're going to write this down and look at it later, you feel free. Jeremiah chapter 49, verses 34 through 38, we see God again using the description of four winds to release justice on this country or this place called Elam. And so in the Old Testament, God is again using, Jeremiah sees this and he sees these Four winds coming to being released on this country to bring God's justice on this place called Elam. So again, very similar to what John sees here are these four winds who are given authority to harm earth and sea. So you have four angels, then another angel show, shows up, and this angel comes, stand down. Like he looks at the other angels like, don't, wait. Don't, don't, don't release this yet. Why? Verse 3. He says, don't release God's justice yet until something happens, until a sealing, all right, until the, these people who are servants of God are sealed. Well, let's, let's unpack that a little bit. In that time period, a king or a property owner could use some kind of physical mark to show ownership on those servants who belong to him. And it was typical that that mark would go on the forehead, and so if you were serving the king, it would be very easy and quick for someone to identify that you are someone who serves the king. So it was a, it was a marking to show who you belong to. And we're told that well, whose seal is this? What's it say? It's the seal of the living God. So this is something that God is using to identify those who belong to him. It's a seal of the living God. It's kind of like a birth certificate. If you were to go down in my basement, we have a filing cabinet down there, and I have a folder that says birth certificates on it. And in that folder are each one of our birth certificates. And there have been different times throughout our life, whether it be getting a passport or something like that, when we've had to pull out birth certificates as proof, as the evidence, as the marking to show that our kids belong to us or that they were born here in the United States. All right, so in a similar sense, this seal of God is put on people who belong to him to show that they belong to God. All right, so who are the sealed? Let's keep reading, verse 4 through 8. And I heard the number of the sealed. Now, this is important. John doesn't see it, but he hears the number. He hears the number of those sealed, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 
12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Well, who are these 144,000? Well, let me first tell you who they are not. Let me tell you who they are not. Now, in the past few months, I've received some random text messages and voicemails from a group of people called Jehovah's Witnesses. Anybody heard, heard, heard about heard them? Okay, so just randomly, I don't know why or how, but I've re- received some text messages or voicemails from, from people from that group. In fact, uh, a couple months ago, I was having lunch with Bobby Sammons from our house church down in Newport, and there were a few from the group of Jehovah's Witnesses there on the sidewalk, and they were, you know, just willing to talk to anyone, very kind, very cordial, and willing to talk to anyone that wanted to listen. In fact, and then a week ago, I was, uh, was here in Newtown. I kind of ran the 5K here, and while I was waiting around, I got talking to a guy, and, and uh, come to find out he's part of, he's a Jehovah's Witness, right? Now, why do I share all that? I share that because the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that they are the 144,000 that are sealed. That's what they believe. And they believe that that is the limited number of people that will go to heaven, is 144,000. Now, they also believe that those people can fall away. So that number is continuing to go up and down, up and down, right? Up and So you never really know. So it's going all over the place, all right? But that's what they believe, that ultimately... The 144,000 will be those who will be in heaven one day. Now, that is not what the Bible teaches. That is nowhere to be found in the teachings of Jesus. Jesus never limits the number of those who can go to heaven. In fact, all you have to do is keep reading chapter 7, which we will do, and you'll see that there's actually a number too high to even count. So this is not in Scripture. This is not Jesus never taught that there was a limited number. In, in fact, Jehovah's Witnesses don't even believe that Jesus is God. They believe that he was the first created being, that he was actually Michael the archangel, and then when he came to earth, he came as Jesus. So they don't believe that Jesus is God. And if Jesus isn't God, then you cannot have the perfect sacrifice for your sins on that cross. They don't believe the Holy Spirit is God. And if you just read Acts chapter 5, Peter describes to Ananias Sapphira, you've lied to God, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Um, they don't believe that Jesus died on a cross. They believe that Jesus died on some kind of torture stake, which if you read the Gospels, it says that Jesus died on a cross. They have their own translation of the Bible, and ultimately they believe at the core of it that you need to follow their teachings in order to be forgiven of your sins. So all that to say... The 144,000 are not Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay? Now, why do I share that with you? I share that with you because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, we need to be aware of false teaching. So see, this is kind of help, hopefully equipping and teaching more this morning to equip you. So you can be, be aware of that. What they're teaching is not found in Scripture. They're not Christians. They need to hear the glorious good news of the gospel. All right? But I share that so you can know that Jehovah's Witnesses are not the 144,000. So who are they? Well, I think we can figure out a little bit of who they are. Verse 4, we're told that they're from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So I think these are 
Jews, Jewish people, and there's 12,000 from each tribe. Now, why is that significant? And listen, there's all kinds of different interpretations of what this is and what this means. And one guy that I was reading, his name is Gregory Beale. Um, he's a professor at a seminary. He says this about this number. He says, 12 is the number of God's people, which is squared to indicate completeness and multiplied by 1,000 to connote vastness. All right, so he's saying that he would say that this isn't a literal number of 144,000. This is more to represent that there's a number, going to be a number of Jews who have the seal of God. Well, we've already learned what's the seal of God. It's those who belong to God, those who are believing the good news of the gospel and have had their sins washed by the blood of Jesus through the cross. They're believing the gospel. Now, there are people who, who disagree with that. I'm just telling you that I'm trying to help a little bit and teach a little bit, and, and that's okay if you disagree, but I, I, I'm trying to help us understand a little bit of who are these 144,000. They're sons of Israel. I believe these are Jewish people. We know they have the seal of God, so we know that they belong to God. They're his, which means they must then be believing the gospel for the salvation of their sins. All right, so that's who these are. And, and then they have the seal on their forehead. Now, what's that seal? Always use the Bible to understand the Bible. Go to Revelation 14, because we see these 144,000 again in Revelation chapter 14. What's the seal that's on their foreheads that John is seeing? Again, that seal was just some kind of marking, like a symbol of a marking to identify those who belong to God. Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, so this is John again, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name, the Lamb's name, the Lamb is Jesus, and his Father's name written where? On their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found for they are blameless. So where are, we, where are these 144,000? Verse one, they're in Mount Zion. That's a hill outside Jerusalem. A very Jewish reference is Mount Zion. And we're told that they have the seal on their foreheads. What's the seal? The name Jesus, the name, the character, the person of Jesus and the person of, so you've God the Father, the name of the Father and the name of the Son. So these people are sealed by the Father, they're sealed by the Son. And if you read um, the teachings of Paul he, in Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 4, he talks about the Holy Spirit is the seal of God until the day of redemption, until we are physically in the presence of Jesus. I think the seal is God himself. The seal of those, what marks you, what marks someone as a follower of Jesus who belongs to God is the very person of God himself, Christ in me. The spirit of the Father, the spirit of Christ, as we see told in Scripture and taught in Scripture. We see them redeemed. All right, we see them also, they are loyal to their groom, Jesus. And so all of the, we're told that they're, they're first fruits. Another, again, again, that's another Jewish term that, that, um, to represent the very first pickings of the crop, which was a promise that there's more to come. 
And if you go back to the book of Romans chapter 9, we won't look at it for time's sake, but Romans chapter 9, Paul is writing and he talks about, and he quotes the prophet Isaiah, and he says, there's going to be a remnant of Jews who are going to believe the gospel. And he quotes that in Romans, he says that in Romans 9. And then all of Romans 11 is Paul explaining that, that there's going to be a remnant of Jews who are going to believe Jesus is their promised Messiah, and they're going to put their faith in him. So who are these 144,000? I think, I think these are Jews who are going to put their faith, or put their faith in Jesus, believing Jesus to be the promised Messiah, have their sins washed by the blood of the Lamb, sealed by God himself, showing that they belong to him and him alone. I think that's who the 144,000 are. But that's not the only crowd that, that John sees. Now, if, if you're John, who is a Jew, and you're seeing this, how would you be feeling right now? I think you'd be excited. More of my countrymen are going to give their lives to Jesus. The very ones that rejected him and put him on the cross, they're going to, so there's more? You mean there's more that are going to come to know Jesus as a promise? Well, I think his heart, as he sees this, has to be overflowing with joy right now. And then he sees another crowd, Revelation chapter 7. He sees another crowd, verses 9 through 12. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. So John sees another crowd, and the very first he sees this very Jewish crowd who are sealed. They belong to God. These are people that I believe are putting their faith in Jesus as their promised Messiah. Now he sees a different crowd. And this crowd is from all over the world. People from every tribe, every nation, language. There's people from Afghanistan in this crowd. There's people from Vietnam in this crowd. There's people from from the U.S. in this crowd, from Congo. And they're speaking different. He hears all these different languages, but where are they? They're inside the throne room of God. Now, when we lived in Dublin, Ireland as missionaries for two and a half years, we were part of a church called Grace Church. And it was right in the city center of Dublin, Ireland. And, and there were people from all over the world that came to this church, that were part of this church. And I remember one Sunday, one of the church leaders got up and he said, I'm just curious. I'm just curious to see how many different nations we have represented here on a Sunday morning. And so he kind of, you know, figured that out. And there were well over 20 different nations in, in this little congregation Less than 100 people worshiping Jesus that morning. Each spoke their own language as well as English. I mean, it was amazing, incredible. That's kind of people from like the Philippines, from, from Africa, from the U.S., from Brazil. They were all, all in this little, little congregation. And I think that's kind of what, what John sees here is inside the throne room of God, this multi-ethnic crowd worshiping Jesus for the salvation that he's given them. It's beautiful. I think this crowd, that first crowd was more of a Jewish crowd. I think this crowd is a Gentile crowd that he sees. 
That's what he's seeing. They're wearing white robes and palm branches, which, as we've talked about in the past, the white robes just reference them believing the gospel and through Jesus Christ and his blood shed for them on the cross. They're trusting Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. They're made clean. And palm branches were a Jewish symbol for celebrating victory. And so these people, I mean, they are just celebrating that Jesus Christ has saved them from sin. When's the last time you and I were so overcome with joy that God has saved us from our sins through his son Jesus? That's what this crowd is doing. And there's something beautiful about this crowd. All different colors of skin in this crowd. You don't see any kind of racial division, do you? Why? The gospel. The focus isn't on that. The focus is on Jesus. It's on Jesus. There's all kinds of different colors of skin. This is multi-ethnic group. Why? Because of the gospel of Jesus. Listen to me. This crowd proves that the gospel of Jesus defeats the sin of racism. It defeats the sin of This crowd is, is evidence of that. Evidence of it. Jesus is proof, right? Their focus is on the king who has saved them from their sins. And listen, the apostle Paul taught this. I want you to see this. Ephesians chapter 2, real quick. Ephesians 2, verses 13 through 19. And I think this is really important that we pause on here because, again, to teach, to help us to know how best to engage our culture. I think it's important to see some application implications here for us from what John sees in that crowd in heaven. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 19 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, that's referencing Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he, Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made us both, Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, that thing that kept us apart and divided us, which is sin, Jesus kills at the cross. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, Gentile, and peace to those who were near, Jew. For through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Paul is teaching that the thing that divided us, Jews and Gentiles hated each other. It was racism back in their day. And he says the thing that was creating the division between us, which is sin, Jesus crucified at the cross. He overcame it through his death on the cross. And Jesus removes the wall of hostility, that wall of sin, and brings together both diversity and unity through the gospel. Daryl Harrison, who is a leader of the Just Thinking uh, Ministries, Just Thinking podcast, this is what he has to say. He says, the problem of racial reconciliation is rooted in our inherent enmity against God, not our inherent ethnicity. In other words, it is what is on the inside of us that is the issue, not what is on the outside of us. He's saying the problem is sin. That's the problem. If racism is a sin, sin comes from the heart. So if you want to fight racism, you've got to attack the heart. You have to. 
You cannot overcome the sin of racism without the gospel because it is the gospel that overcomes and defeats sin. So this is why if we want to fight, you need to include talking about Jesus and how through Jesus there's brought together our diversity and unity under one name. And that multi-ethnic crowd in heaven is proof that the gospel of Jesus Christ defeats the sin of racism. And it is a heart problem. And we must fight against sin, but we fight with what can truly conquer it. And that is the good news in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so who's able to stand in the throne room? Who's able to stand against the pounding waves of God's judgment? Jews who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Gentiles from all nations who have put their faith in Christ. Where are they coming from? Let's keep reading. Revelation chapter 7, 13 to the end. Verse 13 to the end. He says this. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, and whenever you see a therefore in Scripture, what do you do? You find out what it's there for. All right? So therefore, they are before the throne of God. That was good. That was good. Anyway. Um, Serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them from his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And so this, this elder who's in the throne, he comes to John, and he says, John, where are, these, where are these people coming from? And John's like, uh, sir, you know, great response, by the way. You know, puts it back on him. Like, sir, you know. You know where they're coming from. Yeah, I do know. Okay, here's where they're coming. He says they're coming out of this great tribulation. Now, what's he mean by that? that it's, in, it's present tense. So he's saying these are people that are right there in that moment. They're coming out of, they're coming through this, this great, this mega affliction and oppression, he's saying. So is this tribulation something that they were experiencing in the moment? Yes. Is it also something future? Yes. How do we know this? Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, John refers to himself. He says, I am a partner with you in what? In the tribulation. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. He says, I'm a partner with you right now in the tribulation, he says. They were experienced. John is on an isolated island. He's there, left pretty much to die because he's following Jesus. That was tribulation for John and for many Christians in that day. But, so we know it's present, but it's also future. And we know that because Jesus said in John 16, verse 33, he says, you will have tribulation if you follow him. And, in, and Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 3, he said, if you follow Jesus, you are destined for tribulation. So this is something now and it's something future. And how, how are these people able to stand? What's his answer? They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The gospel. How are they able to do it? Jesus, the gospel. And he says this, therefore, because you are believing Jesus, because you belong to him, you have the promise and the hope that you will be in his presence one day, serving him day and night 
and all the scorching heat and, and, and the lack of food and the lack of water, your tribulation, the sorrow, the tears, that will all be gone. He's going to wipe all that away one day. He's going to remove that tribulation because you'll be in the presence of your good shepherd once and for all. And I think that was the hope in the midst of their tribulation, and it's our hope in the midst of ours, whether that be now or later or now and later. And so what's the explanation here? I don't know. <laughs> let, me, let me try, okay? <laughs> let me try this. Go for this, okay? Here's what I think John sees in Revelation 7. I think he sees the promise and the power of the gospel. I think that's what he sees. And I know this because Romans chapter 1, verse 16 to 17, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone believes, first for the who? Jew, which he sees, and then for the who? Who he sees. I think John is witnessing the power of the gospel to save anyone. And he's seeing the promise of the gospel to save anyone. But I also think John sees not only the power and the promise of the gospel, I think John is seeing the perseverance of the gospel. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, Paul writes, I am preached to you the gospel of first importance on which you stand. Same word that we read in Revelation chapter 6. Who's able to stand? Those who are standing on the gospel. He's seeing the purpose and the promise of the gospel, and he's seeing the perseverance of the gospel. And so here's the point. When tribulation comes, those believing the gospel will stand. When tribulation comes, those who are believing the gospel will stand. Well, what's that mean? Here's some implications. If you are believing Jesus and the gospel, you can have confidence that you belong to God right now. If you are believing Jesus and the gospel, you are sealed. You belong to him. You are his. And he's put the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all over you to show you and to show everyone else that you're his. You belong to him. And if you're believing Jesus and the gospel, you are able to stand when God pours out his justice on the planet. Well, that's now and later, now or later. You're able to stand because you are putting your hope in Jesus and the gospel. And if because of Jesus and the gospel, you do not stand alone. You are connected to a global, multi-ethnic church community who's also standing with you. This should drive us to get to know Jesus and the gospel more deeply and more intimately. Because there might come a day when you are forced, who will you choose? Who will you choose? And in that moment, you cannot in that moment then, hmm, I should have spent more time in my Bible getting to know this Jesus. In that moment, you need to know this Jesus on which you are able to stand because when the pounding waves of tribulation come now and later or now or later, it will be the one who's holding you that will enable you to stand. And another implication for us is this. Because there are those who have yet to believe Jesus in the gospel, when God's tribulation comes, they will drown without him. And an implication for you and for me, for those who are believing the gospel, is that we must share him with those who need him.
because without him, they will not be able to stand. And listen, the last implication for us I want us to hear is this. That crowd is going crazy in the presence of Jesus because they understand what they've been saved from and who they're standing on and who they're standing with. This should cause us as those who belong to God to rejoice, to rejoice in gratitude to our Savior, to our King. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your teaching. Thank you for your truth. Lord, there's so much here, and I confess, I don't, I don't understand it all. But what I do understand makes my heart grateful that you, Father, would send your son to die on a cross to wash me clean by his blood and so that I can be part of the victory party that you have planned. As we sing this next song, I just want to leave it open. If you need prayer this morning, I'll be off to the side. You can pray if you need someone to pray with you. Or maybe there's someone you want to pray for this morning. Why don't you feel free to do that? But as the band plays quietly here for just a moment, I want you to ask this question. God, what are you saying to me right now? What are you saying to me? And just listen to what the Spirit says to you. What's he saying to you this morning?